This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, Quinta, I hear you have some sad horticultural news to share with us today. Yes, I I killed a plant this weekend. I murdered it. Well, I don't know about murder. Maybe maybe was bad pre- slaughter. Was it, pre- plant med- slaughter. was it premeditated? No, it was not. It was it was depraved heart murder. I <laughs> I have a tropical plant. Had a tropical plant in my oh. bathroom, just you know to. Give some greenery to the space, make it a little more pleasant. And I left the window open in my bathroom this weekend when Ooh. in DC there was a low of maybe like 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And it yeah. turns out tropical <laughs> plants don't like that. So it is dead. I am attempting to propagate some of the sprigs, but I I am a plant killer. I'm sad to say. At least it went quickly. I have like... <laughs> five or six house plants that have like just like three leaves on them still and i'm like i think it's still alive i feel guilty throwing it out it looks like garbage (laughs) but but those three leaves keep giving me hope and so i'm still hanging on to them the trick is either you're either overwatering it or you're underwatering it or it's too warm or it's too cold or you're watering it just right but the universe hates you like or you know you, you, you committed terrible things in a previous life and this is just karma or it's root rot, and the only way you can fix it is by doing something that's almost certainly going to kill the plant, <laughs> which is pulling it out and cutting its roots off. It's absurd. A radical rootectomy, yes. I will say I have saved a plant from root rot before, Ooh. so this is my, my newly acquired green thumb has failed me in this instance. Very, very classic young millennial plant drama. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Live and Let Reason. I am your host, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are excited to have back with us today a repeat customer in the form of Lawfare Managing Editor Jacob Schultz. Jacob, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, Alan's gotten so much better at the low-toned hello since the first time I was here. His voice drops an octave every episode, and we're waiting for people to notice. Eventually, it's going to get to the point where just dogs bark at it, uh, but we're not quite there yet. It'll be like an ASMR sort of thing where you just get tingly, and you're like, oh, it's Alan. I think we got to move on, Scott. (laughs) No ASMR in the intro. Yeah, we're going to slap a parental advisory on, on this. Podcast. ASMR is totally legit. It's, uh, you know, Meridian's it's sensation. Whatever, very, whatever. very millennial also. Very millennial. It's the one benefit of being sick. You can do the whole Barry White thing, which is which is not something I get to do very often. I did feel like my sick uh, episode of the podcast was my sexiest episode of the podcast. <laughs> I will have to concede. <laughs> well... Speaking of sexy episodes of the podcast, we've got one lined up for you, uh, because this is the House of Canards edition. 
uh, where we plan on digging through some of the big stories from National Security News from the week, some of which may be uh, putting forward a little bit more of a narrative than they warrant or not. And we'll hash that out together today uh, on this episode. Topic one, the Shawshank detention. The Islamic State attempted a violent jailbreak of thousands of their Confederates this week in Syria. And while U.S.-backed Kurdish forces appear to have contained the damage thus far, at least for the moment, although the story is very much still developing, the outcome remains far from certain. What does this tell us about the state of the U.S. strategy in Syria and how sustainable it is? Topic two, pure Michigan. That rare official state motto that really can be taken both ways, uh, which I admire for Michigan for going with, because it, it really is being very honest with itself there. Relating to Michigan, the prosecution of the attempted kidnappers of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has hit a snag, with defense attorneys and the conservative media alleging that purported misconduct on the part of the FBI amounts to entrapment. What could a failure here mean for the fight against domestic violent extremism? Topic three, urgent Chinese secrets, huh? I don't get it. I think this may be the only one. Alan, I was hoping you would get this one. It's like a famous commercial that has a line. Don't worry about it. I'll put a link into the whole thing. It's about laundry detergent. Don't worry about it. The Justice Department has dropped charges in a leading case in the China Initiative, a Trump-era program that targets individuals for improper ties to China, but has been criticized for encouraging racial discrimination and chilling legitimate research. Is this the end of the program or something else? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So in northeastern Syria, in the city of uh, Hasaka, as Scott mentioned, Islamic State fighters are uh, very much in the middle of an ongoing siege of the uh, Gueran prison. The prison has thousands of Islamic State fighters, including hundreds of ISIS family members, uh, many of whom are children. And it's a makeshift prison. It's very overcrowded. Uh, Human Rights Watch has described uh, the conditions as inhuman and degrading. And this attack, which really came out of nowhere, at least as far as many observers were concerned, is in this very uncertain stage, right? After some initial successes by the Islamic State fighters, the Kurdish Syrian Defense Forces have uh, appeared to have mostly contained, uh, with the help of U.S. forces, both uh, in the air and on the ground, uh, mostly contained the ISIS fighters in the prison, though some of the um, fighting has spilled out into uh, the neighborhoods around the prison. So, you know, I I am not a foreign policy expert, but, you know, I try to stay up on it. And I haven't really thought much about ISIS lately. And until recently, I don't think there was an obvious reason to think that its defeat over the past several years, you know, from at one point controlling huge swaths of Iraq and Syria to being a relatively minor force in the region, it wasn't obvious to think that that situation would change anytime soon. Um, So let me start with you, Scott, and just ask, is this attempted jailbreak, is it a sign that ISIS is back? And if so, to what degree? Well, I think it's best taken as a sign that ISIS never really went away, to be honest. Uh, you know, ISIS is a very reflects a very persistent trend, and it actually predates the Islamic State movement. You go back to al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, you go back to other groups that kind of allied with and consolidated with the Islamic State during its dramatic rise to power in 2014. There has been a persistent thread through parts of the predominantly Sunni Islamic community in Syria and Iraq crossing the border there. That's where the Islamic State has its kind of root. It's a very multi-ethnic, diverse part of the world, um, but that's kind of where it has it has that, that group and the movement is kind of housed, um, where in part because in Iraq they felt 
often very legitimately discriminated against under pressure by uh, the Shia-led dominant government. In Syria, they faced similar similar sort of circumstances in various regards where there has been a recurrence of these sorts of movements. And the Islamic State, again, is kind of just the most organized, dramatic version of that. And their, their effort to make them go away has really centered on, in Iraq, kind of handing control back to the Iraqi government. There, there's been more success, but there have been incidents about Islamic State violence in Iraq, uh, including you know pretty serious attacks on Iraqi troops, occasionally U.S. troops with Iraqi troops uh, or coalition troops. Um, I think there was at least one attack on a prison there as well, and prison breaks being a major, major Islamic State tactic that they've deployed numerous times uh, since 2014 and their kind of initial rise even before that, really. And then in Syria, it's been to kind of give a big swath of the country to control of the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, a group that is really based in kind of the Kurdish elements of the country. It's highly controversial because it's seen as having ties to dissidents in Turkey that Turkey views as terrorist groups uh, that has ideological and cultural ties with the SDF, or at least the Kurdish core of the SDF in Syria. But the U.S. has continued to support this group, help them maintain territorial control. They're not trying to declare independence, but they do effectively control a big part of the country. And they're maintaining control of these huge prisons full of thousands of not just ISIS fighters, but their family members, uh, spouses who came here, and their children, uh, hundreds and thousands of children in various prison camps being overseen by the SDF. That are It's a really difficult task that we've kind of left in the SDF's hands for several years now. We're supposed to be managing these efforts. At various times, the SDF has suggested, we can't do this. Like, we're going to have to let these people go. This is administratively impossible for us. We don't have the resources. They've been dissuaded from doing that so far. But I think a scenario like this was kind of inevitable, uh, or not inevitable, certainly foreseeable, to say that the SDF has, has said out loud, we are on the edge of our capabilities in trying to keep these people in these facilities. And when you see uh, opportunities, other groups, you know, elements of the IS that is still able to operate outside, the prisons are very tempting targets to them. Multiple times they have been able to free huge swaths of their supporters and really amp up their numbers, their ground forces by breaking people out of prison. This was some of the earliest moves they did before their big push in Iraq. And they appear to be replicating that strategy here. So long story short, I, I think it really brings to the fore some of the questions people have very recently had about how sustainable the U.S. strategy in Syria really is and begs for some other solution about what to do with these thousands of ISIS fighters that right now the plan still seems to be to just kind of muddle through and keep them detained until we find a better solution that nobody knows exactly what that is. So I want to go to Quinta and, and Jacob, but I, I do want to kind of follow up on, on something, Scott, which is, okay, so so let's say you're the head of sort of Middle East policy in the National Security Council, right? And you're briefing the president and the president just asks you, right? Like, okay, this is obviously bad, but how bad is this, right? On a scale from, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's annoying, but it's just kind of, it's kind of random. It'll get sorted out to the, like, this is a sign that the Islamic State is coming back to the levels of influence and power that it had in the battle days, you know, during the Obama administration. Can we say anything about what this jailbreak says, not just about whether the Islamic State still exists, which it obviously does, but how powerful it remains as a force in the region, um, not just in terms of kind of making trouble in a localized way, but of being a real strategic player in that area? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think it suggests the Islamic State is on its way back to a rise to anything approaching what it was in 2014 or late 2013 during its its period there. But it does mean that it remains a potent movement that can do things similar to what maybe al-Qaeda and Iraq did for many, many years before that, which is like very serious terrorist attacks and very proposing very serious challenge even to, to well-armed, well-equipped military forces in the region, security forces, when they choose to undertake a particular operation. Um, they're probably not going to hold a lot of territory unless they really ramp up their numbers, but maybe they'll make enough gains to do that. The SDF seems very intent on preventing them from doing that, preventing them from holding territory. But they still have a high operational capability and a lot of people who appear willing to go along with them, and particularly like a lot of people who are just one prison break away from joining them, not any efforts really being made to rehabilitate these people, put them in a society where they would not choose to go back to the Islamic State. If you're given the choice between these horrible, horrible prisons or rejoining the Islamic State, it's not unforeseeable that people would make that choice. I will say, I think the Biden administration is is quite aware of this. You know, the senior director for Middle East policy on the National Security Council is Brett McGurk, who was the you know guy who kind of coordinated the counter-ISIS effort for the end of the Obama administration through a good chunk of the Trump administration. He's very aware of this. I think he's always seen this as a persistent threat. And U.S. policymakers have always said the Islamic State threat is not a way. In fact, they kind of have to say that because the whole legal basis for U.S. troops being in Syria is, and to some extent Iraq, or the less Iraq, but particularly in Syria, is that the Islamic State is still there and we are still fighting them, or at least preventing their imminent resurgence. In a way, this makes that case a lot stronger, right? It shows that there's actually some a good chunk of truth to that. Good news for the AUMF. <laughs> there, there you go, exactly. Um, but it doesn't get you around the much harder strategic questions to say, like, well, what's a sustainable way of moving to a scenario where we don't no longer have to have troops there or no longer have to deal with this cycle of recurrence of these groups. And I, I don't know if there's an easy answer there. Yeah. I mean, to Scott's point, I, I think one aspect of this that's interesting is the, the U.S. compared to its allies and compared to particularly lots of countries in Western Europe has actually behaved somewhat admirably here in, in the sense that you know a, a huge population of the detainees in this prison do not come from Iraq, do not come from Syria don't even come from adjacent countries in the Middle East, but come from either countries in Central Asia or in Western Europe, right? Because when the Islamic State declared the territorial caliphate, huge amounts of people from Western Europe, particularly France, Belgium, and then certain parts of Russia, certain parts of Central Asia, went from their home countries and joined the Islamic State. And you know what, what's happening now is that these people who have been in prison for a large number of years with no intervention from their home country, minimal effort to repatriate them. You know, France in particular is an example of a country who has gone through like seven different iterations of plans to avoid repatriating and trying these people domestically. Like first they, you know, would send them to Iraq so that Iraq could execute them. Second, you know, they tried to set up this whole massive international coalition and yeah, like it's it's just a situation where it feels so inevitable because if you look at what's happened over the past two years since the U.S. withdrawal, the answer is nothing, right? Like European countries have made essentially no major effort to you know to get their citizens back and try them in domestic courts. And what happens there is you know, the prison population continues to swell and continues to stay large, and you know these people become more and more radicalized, and it's. It's a situation where it just feels inevitable on so many different fronts, honestly, the most significant of which being, you know, non-action has consequences, and and this is a consequence of non-action. Yeah, Jacob, your point about radicalization is something that I, I wanted to dig in on, because what I was thinking while reading this is, of course, 
I don't know, maybe this is too flip of a comparison, but ISIS was founded by Zarqawi, who became radicalized, I think, if I'm correct, while in a U.S. prison. So and keeping, you know, an enormous amount of people in what sounds like unbelievably awful and degrading conditions for an extended length of time, including family members, um, including kids who who haven't you know, done anything and had no choice of the matter, seems like not only incredible cruelty and a humanitarian catastrophe before we even get to the prison break, but also a recipe for potentially further extremism and anger and violence. So I don't know what the answer to the specific question of this specific ISIS action is, but it also seems like there's a much bigger question about how to think about, you know, collective responsibility to these people who are in prison, many of whom, to be clear, did extremely terrible things and how to deal with that in a reasonable and fair way that doesn't just lead to further violence down the line. Yeah, I mean, just to, to footstomp Quinta's point that the Guantanamo analogy is really sort of quite striking when you think about this. This is year three or four of people being in you know, detention with no prospect of trial whatsoever no sense of what might happen to them, albeit in a much more precarious position. Obviously, there are no jailbreaks at Guantanamo, but you know the 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 real sort of lack of lessons learned by the world from the Guantanamo experience is pretty seems seems pretty striking to me. Looking at this, so let, let's turn then to what, if anything, the U.S. can do here. Um, and so I think that there's sort of two different questions. So one is the tactical or, or strategic question, right, of, of what should the U.S. policy be going forward to deal with um, ISIS in Syria and other places? And, and the other question is, does the U.S. have the capacity to do that, given all the other geopolitical crises brewing? Uh, you know, as we're recording this, at, like at any moment, Russia could invade Ukraine. Um, and I, I suspect, sadly, that before too long, we're going to have an episode in which Russia has done just that. And, and when and if and when that happens, that will obviously swamp, you know, anything ISIS related. So, you know, I, I am curious. And, and Scott, let me let me go to you. What can the U.S. do? And does the U.S., again, given all the things happening in the world and also to we think worth mentioning, President Biden in particular's desire to keep America out of Middle Eastern wars, is the U.S. position to respond effectively here? It's a great question, and it's a really hard one. I'll start with the the issue kind of fronted, because I think it's the easiest to resolve in a way is the capabilities question. I, I don't think there's a serious capabilities issue here, frankly. Uh, the types of assets you're deploying in these sorts of scenarios, particularly at this stage, is some conventional military forces, a good chunk of special forces, so soldiers, aerial support, drones, things like that. Those are all things that, like, frankly, aren't that implicated by Ukraine or Taiwan. Like you carry Taiwan, you're really talking about conventional military forces, naval, large scale, like land forces. Um, yeah, all these other elements are going to be involved to some extent, but I don't think that's really where the push on a resource front is going to come. And frankly, you have a lot of special forces guys that are like Middle East regional experts because they used to live and work in Iraq for years and now have been scaled down, or maybe they worked in Afghanistan, they have different language skills, but similar skill set in terms of supporting local armed forces that they're much better suited to work here than they are for doing place work otherwise. Maybe you could use them in Ukraine, but um, you know, I suspect there's a, a payoff and in investment here that that 
it's not a hard trade-off to make. So I don't think there's a capability issue. There's a political will question. Um, and certainly I think American appetites for um, these sorts of interventions has declined. But frankly, the Syria intervention has remained so low-key and kind of off the radar that it hasn't become an issue for all the talk of forever wars around Afghanistan, the need to withdraw. Like Syria has been plugging along just fine, and less controversially even than Iraq at this point. And so I'm not sure anybody's going to focus on there. And in part, that's because there's no better solution, right? Like, no, the, the alternative is U.S. troops withdraw, and then maybe the SDF strikes a deal with the Assad regime, hopefully in the best case scenario, right? And tries to reincorporate with some autonomy. In reality, the Assad regime is strongly signaled that they're not going to really give them any meaningful autonomy. Instead, it's going to be an effort to suppress them and brutally uh, reassert control over them, which is what they've done in other parts of the country. They've taken back from uh, insurgent groups with Russian support and assistance. So there's no good outlet here uh, for what to do with the SDF. I do think you have to move towards a negotiated solution that involves the Assad regime, that involves Russia at some point. But all those, this conversation is such a lower uh, priority conversation for than what the United States needs to have with Russia over other items. I just don't see it breaking to the top of those negotiation lists anytime soon. So the status quo is, I think, where you're at. The one thing the Biden administration could do is try and like shore it up strategically and then particularly legally, like come up with a legal, better legal basis for uh, what you're doing or be a little more straightforward about it, say, like try and get congressional buy-in. But, uh, you know, I don't, don't think that they're too worried about that. And frankly, their AUMF argument hasn't, well, that's come under criticism, hasn't really been an obstacle to them so far. So I suspect that that's the status quo is what we're going to see sustained for at least the next few years until our relations with Russia improve on other fronts. Well... Uh, speaking about troubling law enforcement actions, that's not maybe my best segue, but I'll take a crack at it. I'll take that for what it's worth. A jailbreak is kind of a kidnapping. If you think about it, it's like a reverse. It's kind of the opposite it's of like a kidnapping. like a reverse. Yes, it's, a, it's like a kidnapping in that it's the opposite of a kidnapping. All right. I, I can deal with that. Speaking of inverse wow. kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, investigation into the alleged attempt to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has hit a number of snags. Uh, defense attorneys, as well as reporters, investigators, and then particularly the conservative media, conservative opinion media, I should say, has seized on some weirdnesses, for lack of a better way to describe it, that have arisen with the investigation into this group and some of the people involved in the investigation on the government side. We have several FBI agents who have been accused of, and prosecutors, I should say, who have been accused of, in one case, trying to start a private business, as part of which they started tweeting out details of the case. Um, in another case, uh, having involved in a domestic abuse incident with their wife after having attended an orgy in a motel, which features prominently in every story to describe this, which is a weird detail, but okay. I gotta we'll say, in there. I feel like the orgy is way less relevant than the physically assaulting your wife portion of this. A hundred percent. He was not removed from the FBI for the orgy. So I don't know why it's in the story, but I felt compelled to mention it. Probably this, that's why it's in all the stories too, because it's just a weird detail. Gang, gang. Everyone knows orgy sell. It's like the third rule of journalism. That's fair. That's fair. That's why they're working it everywhere they can. We have a third FBI agent who's been accused of perjury in another case, uh, but that that has not yet been removed from the FBI, and to my knowledge, has not been resolved yet. And they have a prosecutor who's been involved in this case who's been accused of misusing informants in another matter. And then you have the FBI informants themselves, some of whom were involved at a pretty high level at organizing some of the meetings, recruiting, and sessions that led to this kidnapping attempt. Um, although I think we're still waiting for the public perspective to get like the full narrative of their role. Um, but this has been reported out 
by defense attorneys and picked up by the media and, and confirmed to some extent, even as those informants themselves were involved in other criminal activity like reselling illegal guns that uh, they have come under some scrutiny for. And in fact, one of which has been indicted by the FBI separately, uh, despite continuing to serve as their informant. So, Alan, I want to turn to you first as our former Justice Department colleague. What are we to make of all these issues? Like, is this fatal to this case? Is this entrapment, as the defendant's attorneys allege? Or does this not get to the core of the case enough to actually disrupt the prosecution and to have broader implications for prosecuting domestic violent extremism? Yeah, no, there, there's there is a lot going on. I, I mean, the initial response is, man, someone needs to go and do a deep dive into FBI field offices in Michigan and what in the world is going on there. I mean, there's just some pretty basic, I mean, I don't want to call it HR because it kind of trivializes it, but there, there's some just sort of general personnel issues that need to be dealt with. Now, as to how it applies to this case, I think it's important to distinguish between two issues here. So there are issues with regards to the specific FBI agents, to the specific informants, you know, some of which have to bear directly on the evidence that the government wants to bring, some of which is just bad for the government, right? I mean, the fact that this FBI agent you know, abused his spouse is not directly relevant to questions of criminal evidence, but obviously it raises broader questions about that particular FBI agent's judgment and ethics and so on and so on, right? It may very well be that this case collapses because there's just so much egregious FBI misconduct that the judge rightly says that, you know, government, you have forfeited your ability to bring this case because you've acted so badly. And, and this is why it's important always. And, 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 you know, especially as we have these seditious conspiracy charges that were brought out a couple of weeks ago in the Oath Keepers cases, it's why it's so important to recognize that, like, lots of things can happen through a criminal trial. Like the wheels can come off the bus in lots of ways that don't go primarily to the core of the government's case. And because, and this is how it should be, criminal trials are highly individualized. Judges are looking at the behavior of the government in a particular investigation. And sometimes the government loses on that ground. Now, that by itself doesn't, I think, tell you much about the underlying strengths of the government's case, and in particular about whether in other similar cases the government would face uh, such problems, right? So I think the counterfactual here is, okay, imagine that you reran this case um, and the FBI agents weren't abusing their partners. They weren't trying to start a consulting gig, that the informants weren't doing drug running on the side. Would the government nevertheless have a problem establishing you know, the the elements of the charges? And in particular, would the government's conduct give rise to a plausible defense of entrapment? That to me is the most interesting part of this case, right? Because that's what bears most directly on other similar cases. On the one hand, entrapment is a very difficult defense to raise. And because of the centrality of informants and sting operations to how the government does law enforcement investigations across a variety of criminal issue areas, the government has gotten really, really good at figuring out where that line is of how much encouragement it can provide to defendants before being faced with a serious entrapment defense. And these entrapment arguments, that not saying that they never win and you know you never know, but they tend not to to be very successful. Now, that's different than the policy question of, you know, whether or not this is legally entrapment 
is this the sort of investigation that we want the government to undertake? Now, you know, I, I have been, I, I think, you know, pretty outspoken in my concern about right-wing extremism, and I am all for very aggressive prosecutions of these folks. But I do think it's important to appreciate the kind of real civil liberties and legal risks that come when the government you know, holds the defendant's hands quite a bit. And, and I think a good uh, analogous situation is, you know, for the decade and a half after 9-11, there were a ton of terrorism prosecutions and investigations that operated this exact same way. The FBI would go into a mosque, they'd find some disaffected kid, they would, you know, over a long period of time, convince that kid to do something crazy, like fly an explosive drone into some building. They'd do all the work, right? They'd make it super easy. The kid would at some point press the button, which of course wasn't connected to anything. And then that person would be then be indicted uh, for terrorism and he'd go to prison for a long time. Now, those entrapment arguments didn't tend to work, but I do think at the time there was correctly some concern that you don't want to be too aggressive in creating or in encouraging people to do the thing that you are then going to uh, charge them for. Where that line is, 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 a, is a tricky one, but I do think, you know, even for those of us who are super concerned about right-wing extremism, it's still always important, I think, to keep in mind where that balance uh, should be, and it raises some, some difficult legal trade-offs. The way this case has fallen apart is incredibly striking. And I want to give a shout out to BuzzFeed, who, which has been doing really incredible reporting on this from the beginning. If you look at, I think, Ken Bensinger is one of the reporters who's been writing about this. And if you look at his byline on BuzzFeed, you just scroll down there. There's, I swear, you know, 20 stories that are just one after another here's something bad that happened in this case for the government. Turns out this guy was running a consulting business. Turns out this agent assaulted his wife. Turns out this. Turns out that. I mean, it's really a comedy is the wrong word, but it's a comedy of errors. It just, you know, mistakes and blunders and self-inflicted wounds just piled on top of one another, which is really striking. I think especially because, as you were kind of hinting, Alan, this, this case is you know, a big marquee case in terms of whether or not the federal government can prosecute right-wing domestic violent extremism. And I I find for that reason, I find the just mistakes upon mistakes really striking. Um, I mean, I, again, I don't want to extrapolate too much because maybe there's just something really weird going on in the Michigan field office. It's It's a little hard to say. But I did come away with this question of whether we are being more critical of this case, we not as in rational security, but the press and the public generally, than we tended to be of the many, 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 many cases in which young Muslim men were pushed by the Bureau in the years after 9-11 to do ridiculous things that they likely would have in no way done or attempted to do without the FBI's encouragement. On the one hand, you can say, well, you know, it's good that this case is getting this scrutiny because it involves you know, people potentially losing losing their liberty and we should take this seriously and it's important to hold the government to high standards. On the other hand, I do wonder what things would look like if the same level of public scrutiny had been applied to all of those other cases. 
And so I, I come away wondering whether this is an instance of the FBI really being the gang that couldn't shoot straight in this particular instance, just there's a confluence of, of factors, or whether the fact that this fell apart so incredibly or seems to have fallen apart should lead to more reflection on the part of the public and on the part of federal law enforcement about use of confidential informants like this more generally. Alan, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, Quint, I think that's exactly right. And I think we can't ignore the role of the right-wing media here, right? Again, on the one hand, it's important for these stories to get coverage because the media is one of the main ways we hold government to account. But I don't think you can read a lot of the kind of hyperbolic coverage of this trial on the right and not get a sense that, and this is a hard thing to say, but look, there's no domestic constituency for international terrorism. And there kind of is a domestic constituency for right-wing domestic extremism. And I got the receipts, right? You know, Tucker Carlson played that insane patriot purge thing, right? It's a little too late to start claiming um, that the only reason the right-wing media is super interested in the Whitmer kidnapping case uh, is because they just want to make sure that the, you know, all defendants' rights are fully vindicated, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the role of the right-wing ecosystem is really troubling. BuzzFeed is obviously not part of that, um, but, you know, BuzzFeed is doing the real reporting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I will say also, I think it's a little premature to write this prosecution off. I think some people have gotten to as somehow dead on arrival. Uh, Right now, my understanding of the procedural posture is that we've got a motion to dismiss by the defense. I think the government just filed their response today or yesterday um, where it laid out a a lot of kind of a juicy narrative strain about the very credible things all the defendants were involved in actually saying and planning on doing independent of inducement by law enforcement officers. And a lot of these problems, which are very real management problems and no doubt are compromising investigations left and right and and will complicate prosecutions. But a lot of this is, you know, window dressing. It, it, it is efforts to cast doubt on the credibility of the law enforcement and prosecutors involved. But there's a reason why the government stated a while ago that we're not going to call these three FBI witnesses, period. But like that's their strategy. They say, we built a case without them. And in my limited experience, I have actually, in my brief dip into the Justice Department world uh, as a paralegal uh, and as an intern uh, at some point 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, worked with undercover agents on a few cases. And I will say, like one thing that was thought of pretty often was, say, we need to build a case that can stand 
independent of any testimony from law enforcement officials. You, because you're in the opportunity to do that. You can get people on tape. You can get documentary records. You can get in this era, which was less of a thing back then, because this was a long time ago. You know, Snapchats and uh, you know online conversations on, on different apps, right? Like you can get all that stuff and put together a really strong documentary evidence case against people without needing testimony to which all this other external evidence of these people's conduct is the only thing is relevant is on their credibility as witnesses right so i would i'll be honest i would be a little surprised if this case goes away that easily on this grounds now the bigger problem may be the jury right if the judge says okay i'm not going to get rid of this case but you can bring in some of the stuff to impeach witnesses to you know cross examine various people the government isn't able to keep it all out by not calling these witnesses and and you judges make calls like that all the time and i think there's often like a strong element of equitable balance that goes into it. And if they do that, then a jury, in part because the jury is probably a lot more sympathetic to these guys than they were to the, you know, 20-something Somalis guys who were prosecuted under this 10 years ago in the post-9-11 era under the similar case strategy, investigation strategy, more than 10, 15 years ago, you know, that may twist the case more than anything. That's where the harm may really come in is this feeds into a narrative where the jury may be much more sympathetic. But a lot of that is on the subjective preferences of the jury members. Um, it's not about the actual like application of law, which is what this current motion is going to, should at least be evaluated against. Yeah, I mean, maybe because this is just top of mind for me because of what had happened with the Oath Keepers indictment two weeks ago, this really reminded me of another Michigan militia trial. So, you know, 10 years ago, 10 or so years ago, there's a group of guys in Michigan who got put on trial for seditious conspiracy. And The trial was really, I was reading through this New York Times article about what had happened with the Whitmer trial. It is really like striking parallels to what had happened there. The FBI informant had a domestic violence problem and, you know, was an unreliable witness for that reason. And there's all sorts of talk about how, you know, what the FBI was doing was in effect, you know, cobbling together 13,000 disparate pieces of crazy talk into one coherent plan that didn't otherwise exist, right? And like, I think... Looking at how striking those parallels are is just really, for me, a, a refresher on just th- these are like difficult cases in the sense that, you know, a lot of these people are not professionals. Like the group of people who are planning to kidnap Gretchen Whitmore are not exactly like SEAL Team 6 here. and But they really like to pretend they are. <laughs> no, and exactly. It kills <laughs> me every time you read these emails and exchanges. Exactly. What, so what did they call themselves? Like the Wolverine Watchmen or something? That's exactly what they call themselves. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think it, depending on right whatever the charges are, this presents itself as varying degrees of difficulty. But there is a really strange thing happening in a lot of these cases where like, what the story the prosecution wants to tell about how organized and how, you know, methodical and planful and imminently ready to do whatever they, you know, had quote planned to do is one thing. But then when you sort of like deconstruct and pull apart the pieces of like who would actually be doing that thing and like what they had actually planned, it often, you know, presents itself as a pretty different story. And that's not to say that the people on trial are not bad people who didn't intend to do bad things, but it's there is often this real sort of delta between the story that you read in an indictment versus the story that when you pick apart and like look deeper at the actual characters involved in it, like what the, you know, upper max of that story could conceivably be. Speaking of screw ups and missteps by the Justice Department. Solid. I thought that was actually Solid a pretty segue. good transition. Good. Thank you. Thank you. DOJ made it easy on you on this one. <laughs> you played it a little you played it a little safe, Quinta, but you know what? It's important it to obvi- okay. mostly hit singles. Okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm reliable now. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm not I'm not going for for anything exciting. Uh, so the Justice Department has been struggling a little bit in its prosecution of cases in the China Initiative, which is a initiative, I guess, by the department uh, begun under the Trump administration to investigate and prosecute uh, mostly academics as well as some corporate espionage cases related to undisclosed ties with Chinese academic institutions. The most high profile, well, there have been two, there have been two developments. One is Charles Lieber, who is a Harvard chemist, was convicted uh, in federal court in Boston on a, a number of counts involving hiding his connection with a Chinese research institution, which was part of the China Initiative. Definitely recommend Jacob's podcast on that um, in the Lawfare podcast. And then just recently, the United States dropped, in a really stunning development, its prosecution against uh, Gang Shen, who is a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. The Gang Shen story is pretty astonishing. So he was indicted right at the end of the Trump administration in, in January of 2021, right before Trump left office, um, again on charges of, of failing to disclose, I think in a grant material submitted to the U.S. government for funding. Uh, an affiliation with a Chinese research institution. And apparently the Department of Energy recently informed the Justice Department that he didn't actually need to have disclosed that. Truly, unbelievably astonishing. And the New York Times has a, a pretty detailed report along with an, an interview with uh, Dr. Chen that basically describes how the U.S. eventually ended up offering him a deferred prosecution agreement, which is also pretty rare in a high-profile case like this. He refused to take it because he he felt that he hadn't done anything wrong. And then the government dropped the case. There's all kinds of just really upsetting details in here, including a, a detail about how uh, so he he's a naturalized American citizen and speaks Mandarin at home when the FBI came to arrest him. He and his wife speak Mandarin with one another. He felt like he couldn't speak to her in their native language because the agents might find that suspicious. Um, and there were even statements by the U.S. attorney prosecuting the case uh, when he was first arrested saying that this was a, a matter of I'm, I'm not sure of the precise wording, but essentially of Dr. Chen's loyalty to China. So the the language here was really brutal. Um, I think it it seems to have really destroyed his life and his research, and also the the research of his graduate students who were sort of really cast out into the cold. And I would argue raises a lot of questions about what on earth the Justice Department was doing here, and whether the China Initiative is worth pursuing in. In any form. And also, you know, how the government can repair the damage here, both among academics, researchers, and particularly among Chinese and Chinese American researchers, where it really just seems to be a, a massive breach of faith. So Jacob, I'm curious for your thoughts here, given your your work on the, the Charles Lieber case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've learned a lot basically just from listening and, and talking with other people. But it, my sense of it is that Right, there is a real disparate impact of the China Initiative on, you know, naturalized Chinese citizens, Chinese Americans, Chinese researchers who are working in the U.S. on on visas. 
And that's, you know, a huge, huge, huge problem. And there's really, aside from that, there's a broader question. And I should say that just, you know, Maggie Lewis, who came on the podcast to talk with me about this, made clear that, you know, even though there is a disparate impact, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's improperly in all cases targeting those researchers, right? Sometimes there are legitimate questions. But I think there's also stepping back a a broader question of like, what is the point of the China initiative? And as best I understand it, the advantage is really, it's less in any sort of investigative posture or any sort of, you know, resource allocation question, although there is some of that, but it's more in the public messaging that accompanied the announcement of the China initiative. So it was announced in 2018 by then Attorney General Sessions. And this had sort of been after a protracted period of you know, lots of economic espionage and sort of theft of trade secrets and and a collection of other assorted problems of that nature. And I, I think to the extent that there was a, a value of, of unfurling such a thing, the value was in, in concretizing in, in the public imagination these you know, disparate collection of things that often get treated with varying degrees of severity as like part of some faintly coherent actual national security threat. And I think there is value to that, right? There is value in the, the sort of instructive message that stealing, you know, biological research is not just like something that's a problem for Harvard University or is a problem for whatever academic, but is is a part of some sort of general national security problem. Where that starts to fall apart and where I think that becomes pretty pernicious is just in the sort of vague nature of the relationship between the China initiative cases, right? Like they don't have a ton in common in lots of instances, other than just the fact that they faintly have to do with some sort of quote China problem. Right. And I think there's a way Maggie Lewis, who who joined me on the podcast talks about how the framing of the China initiative can sort of anthropomorphize China into this all consuming bad, right. That China is just like the, adjective that modifies initiative as if it is something that is coherently meriting an initiative at the Justice Department, right? And that's maybe true to an extent, but there is a way that particularly when handled by someone like Attorney General Sessions, who I don't think was always super, you know, delicate toward matters of stigmatizing certain groups, um, and perhaps intentionally not particularly delicate about that, that really starts to become pernicious. And I think you know, and that only is exacerbated when the demographics of the people who are targeted are, look the way they do, and the the success of some of the cases looks the way it does in the Gang Chen case. Yeah, I, Jacob, I think your point about what exactly is the goal and what exactly is the benefit of these cases is the key question because the costs are are enormous, right? Part of it is again just the stigmatizing effect for Chinese and Chinese American scientists. Part of it is the chilling effect on the U.S.'s ability to attract the, the, the best and brightest. I mean, the story, you know, to quote Am- Hamilton here, right, the, the story of American science is immigrants, we get it done, basically, right? And, and one of America's just huge, huge strengths in science is that it is incredibly open and, and welcoming. And um, for that to change, and to change in such a kind of ham-fisted way is a real problem. Now, look, I, I don't think that the concern around Chinese espionage is invented. Like, I think it's really important to appreciate that this is an enormous threat. And it's not just a threat, but it's also, in some cases, a threat in the way the Justice Department is approaching the problem, which is to say, right, that the Chinese government, for obvious reasons, 
right, uses when it can, right, or sometimes right, members of its diaspora for its geostrategic objectives, right? Now, it's incredibly important to emphasize, right, that the percentage of people who would be willing to do that is tiny, right, is minuscule, right? But it only takes a few people to, you know, bring some number of cases and threats, right? Now, if the Justice Department could show, right, that the people it's going after are the really big fish, right? It's it's exercising a huge amount of prosecutorial discretion. It's making very clear that it has a very high bar to bringing these cases, right? It makes very clear that it's not about stigmatizing a particular group, right? You know, Charles Lieber, I, I don't believe is Chinese or Chinese American, right? Then I think we can talk about whether or not it's worth it. But I, I do think that in its current form, it's probably quite excessive. Now, I do think you need a China initiative. I'm just not convinced that it's like a DOJ thing. Like the government should have a China initiative, right? Um, but there are so many other tools. Like these are academics. Like you don't need to indict them to get them to be transparent and report. Like you can write them a strongly worded letter. And like if I got a strongly worded letter from the federal government telling me that I had violated some federal law, I would freak out. And I would be a boy, even I'd be even more of a boring Boy Scout than I already am. So I think the question here is not, is there a problem, you know, that needs to be addressed with regard to Chinese espionage? But to Jacob's point, like, why is this the way we're doing it, given the enormous stigmatizing costs? I mean, I also think that it's maybe not even write a strongly worded letter, just a letter. Just make it clearer what the disclosure requirements are, because in this case, the U.S. government didn't even seem to know, right? I mean, the insofar as there was an issue in the Gang Cheng case, it seems like he wasn't aware that somebody might have wanted him to report this affiliation, and it turned out the Department of Energy didn't even care. My impression, at least from from talking to academics who work in the sciences, who have paid attention to these cases is that a lot of them didn't even know that they were supposed to report these affiliations, which should be clear, can aren't, you know, the Charles Lieber case involved Lieber taking a giant stack of, of $100 bills in his suitcase back from China and not declaring it. So like, at that point, like, yes, that is ridiculous. You should have realized that there was something hinky. Going I, on. for the record, if anyone's listening from the Department of Justice, I always declare, <laughs> I always declare <laughs> my, my double bags full of bills. It happens, honestly, it happens more often than you think, but I'm always, I always declare it. All those law and technology conferences. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> bags of bags of bitcoins and nfts but it can it can really be something on the level of like getting a hundred bucks from you know a university overseas to like help review grants and people may just not know that they have to declare that so just making it clearer what it is that the government wants people to declare seems perfectly reasonable i don't see any reason to get criminal law involved and the way that we've been doing it just seems to me to really be you know, limiting the possibilities for collaboration in science, limiting connections between the U.S. and China. There's a really striking quote from from Chen and the the New York Times interview where he essentially says that he'd he'd often told scientists over the course of his career who were thinking about being recruited abroad that they should stay in the United States and do their research here. And he said, and this is a quote, I don't know whether I could give that same advice. Like, that's an enormous loss, both culturally and in terms of brain drain. I, I agree with everything everyone has said uh, on this, where uh, well, it sounds like we're, we're close to uh, unanimous in our views. The one thing I will add to this is that this is a particular poor tactic when we have legitimate concerns about China abusing their own legal process 
to unlawfully detain American citizens uh, and interfere with their legitimate lawful activities in China, which there are many Americans doing, just like there are many uh, Chinese nationals here doing legitimate work. Now, I think there are may well be policy arguments for saying we should reduce some of those ties. I've been clear about this on this call before. I think it's very hard to keep maintaining level ties when you see a level of abuse coming for the Chinese government. But the answer to that is not to match it. Uh, it is to use other tools available to you other than the criminal justice system, like the huge number of regulatory measures that the government could use using an array of authorities that would bear on this and potentially have the same deterrent effect if they decided this was the leg- the right policy here is to find ways to constrain some of these types of engagement in certain areas. I have no doubt that you could do that through a number of regulatory measures. And in the criminal justice system, this is a question that rises in the sanctions context all the time, where you frequently have people who may have inadvertently violated sanctions because they did business with an entity they didn't realize was a subsidiary of a sanctioned entity, something along those lines, or they just didn't have proper internal checks to check the SDN list. And often what the government will do in those cases is they write a strongly worded letter. They try and build a stronger case because they say, we're going to notify these people unless we have a clear clear signs that they were knew what they were doing was unlawful, we're going to strengthen our case by clarifying that they have the mens rea, the intent to violate the law here, uh, by sending them a letter saying, just so you know, this is the law and we noticed this transaction and this is a problem. That does seem like that would have been the reasonable approach here. But the fact that U.S. Attorney's Office would drop case like this is a really dramatic step to take. I mean, it is a sign that the current U.S. attorney uh, or acting U.S. attorney there really found something wrong with this case that the prior U.S. attorney pursued. That itself is something that warrants looking into uh, because that sort of swing is not something that's supposed to be happening with the use of criminal justice um, against U.S. nationals. So uh, hopefully we'll get more scrutiny on that front as well. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of our chat today as we are running short on time. But of course, it is rational security, so we do not leave you without some object lessons uh, to keep pondering on with the rest of your week. Alan, let me hand it over to you first. So my object lesson, I feel like this is a very traditional podcast object lesson because I'm recommending another podcast, um, which I know is very unfashionable, but this one is just so good. It's called The Just Enough Family. Uh, It's created by uh, Ariel Levy from The New Yorker and uh, Melinda Shopson. And it is about, uh, how do you describe it? I'm going to say it's like a cross between succession and the borscht belt. It's it's about the rise and fall of this really famous Jewish family, uh, the kind of infamous corporate raider Stahl Steinberg, who was one of these big corporate raider types in the 70s and and 80s. And his niece, the main character is his niece, Liz Lang, uh, who made her fortune doing high-end maternity wear. And it's it's just, it's an amazing podcast of the rise and, you know, one like these people were the richest family in America for a while. And when they were the richest family in America, everyone liked each other. And then they stopped because the corporate rating stopped working. And then it all just fell apart. And, and it is it is delightful. I mean, I will admit part of it is because it's just a wild story. And it's always fun to listen to the lifestyle of the rich and fabulous, especially when it doesn't always work out so well for them. But also the characters, despite like having just obvious flaws, are all remarkably likable and weirdly self-aware. And it is very bingeable. Um, The first season is uh, like eight episodes. It's it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. I I am super excited for the next chapter in this saga. Quinta, you want to go ahead? My object lesson is a Wordle knockoff. So you have probably at this point Ooh, heard of Wordle. Wordle. I like Wordle. I have Wordle. never played Wordle. I, I will fun. not play Wordle until I die. This is my stand. I'm That's pulling a fine. Ben Wittes and making a totally unnecessary ideological stance that no one cares about. 
which is that I <laughs> yeah. don't I don't Wordle. people can like different things. That's fine. <laughs> I enjoy Wordle. If you like me enjoy Wordle, you might also enjoy Absurdle, which is Wordle. Except it's it's quite difficult to explain, but essentially Wordle, there's like one word that you're trying to guess. Absurdle, it starts with all five letter words that are in the library, and it essentially makes it harder for you by instead of there being one word you're aiming for, there could be any word you're aiming for. And it basically, as soon as you fill in the letters, will go to the widest possible category of next possible words. That's a very bad explanation. If you play it, you will see what I mean. Because of the mechanics, I think it is impossible to win in fewer than four moves. Um, it is delightful. It is very fun. I highly recommend it. And then you should post your score on Twitter and tag oh, Alan. I will say this don't. is a very necessary innovation. I will. I'm not a big fan of the Wordle posting, but I do enjoy it playing every day. The problem is Wordle is like like Monopoly in that there's just one dominant strategy, and it's not that hard once you figure out what it is, uh, and will usually give you an answer in like three or four guesses. Well, there are at least two strategies. I, there's like a set of words that if you guess, you will get the right answer by the third or four guess, fourth guess, like 95 percent of the time. And like if you once you figure that out, it becomes a lot less entertaining. There is though, I will say, a hard mode on Wordle. Uh, which is worth trying, where you have to swap it, which makes it much more interesting. And this sounds a lot more like the hard mode version in a way, and that it forces you to like retain the fruits of your prior guesses in a way, although in a very different way than hard mode does. I will also compliment Wordle. They have a colorblind uh, version. It's like one of the very few games in the world that has that. It is very progressive. They do. Very appreciated by colorblind people like me who are often, you know, excluded from games or lose inadvertently because of strategic areas because I can't see the pieces. <laughs> um, so thank you, Wordle. I appreciate it. Settlers of Catan, you're up next. Get on it, guys. Red and green and brown. It's a stupid set of colors to label your pieces. That's not my object lesson, though. But before we get to Scott's object lesson, I just want to clarify that anyone who tags me with their Wordle score, I will interpret that as an act of war, <laughs> just to be clear. And I will, I will escalate with overwhelming force. I don't know how yet. Alan, did you, see the, did you see the thing about the Twitter bot that replies to people's Wordle scores and spoils the next day for them? The, it's banned. The, Twitter the banned Twitter it. bot is just you. It's just Alan. <laughs> every, problem is, every problem is a content moderation problem. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. That one I'm I'm supportive of. Nobody no need to brag about your Wordle scores, guys. That's lame. Twitter is lame enough already. We don't need to make it lamer. For my actual object lesson, though, I am here to talk about that dreaded topic that no one cares about except for me and maybe Jacob. I can't remember for sure, which is sports ball, specifically professional motherfucking football. <laughs> because we had the best weekend of football I have ever seen. This past weekend, it was mind-blowingly crazy. And I meant to recommend this before this past weekend. So I'm going to do this a year in advance and try and force myself to remember. Hey, people who think they don't like professional football and don't appreciate it should watch the divisional round. This is three weekends before Super Bowl weekend because it is always the most amazing football games. The next two rounds are usually not, not necessarily that good. I think one, get, one of the three games will be interesting. But it is was just wild. I mean, you saw people doing superhuman things. The last, you know, two minutes of the game between the Bills and the Chiefs was just insane football of a type you've never seen before. And football is like a fascinatingly complex game, if a little brutal, and that that should be softened and improved upon, but phenomenal watch. But then we saw the whole weekend get ruined by this insane move where the NFL has this crazy rule that when teams are tied, they then 
flip a coin and the first team to score wins. Remember, football is one of those things where it's possession switches. So like only one team has a chance to win. At the end of a football game, when defense, which is frankly much harder and more physically taxing than offense, both team defenses are exhausting. That's a crazy rule because it means that most of the time it's all going to come down to a coin flip. So we saw the two best, arguably best quarterbacks in football, two of the best teams in the league, have their game come down to a coin flip. And that's a stupid, stupid way to end a game, NFL. So I'm telling you, if you care about the Electoral Count Act, if you care about the filibuster, if you care about procedural reform, it's time to get on a procedure that we can definitely change a little more easily than those, probably, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But we can at least try. And that is the National Football League's overtime rules. They're completely insane, at least in the playoffs. They're completely insane and really spoil the game and need to be ditched. That's my rant. Scott, you got to get Stephen A. Smith on here next week. You, you oh, versus I will. Him. Uh, if we can turn this, if we can spin this podcast off into a food podcast and a sports podcast, I'd be thrilled. NFL Ringer, I'm a big fan, guys. Drop me a line. I'll hop on. We can chat about it. Or Kevin fantasy Clark. football. Tweet oh, yeah. You, exactly. can have your, you can have your sports Crossover podcast. Crossover episode. Oh, I will yeah. say, I will oh, say, as someone who does not identify as a sports ball person, I actually do think football is an amazing game. It's just I do find the sort of human dogfighting element of it a little hard to watch. But if it's like if they could somehow make it less brutal i think the incredible strategic depth of the game would remain and i i think i'd be a huge fan such a boring comment oh my god if you have not watched actually like canadian professional football which is way safer it's actually like a pretty satisfying game really nice to each other are they constantly apologizing to each other they definitely seem nicer But it's definitely like just like a they like adjusted the way you return the ball in a way that has way less injuries, and it seems like we could implement. It just changes the physicality of the game dramatically, so like teams would lose their edge, and so I think they're hesitant to embrace it. Is my understanding, having not really looked into the topic too closely. I will say this also: if you're a professional football fan, you're dubious. Just watch the last four minutes of a game of one of these good games this weekend. No, you don't have to watch the whole thing. Watch the whole last quarter if you can, or at least the last four minutes. That's when the exciting stuff really happens. If you did that this past weekend, you would have had nine heart attacks over how excited you were over what was happening. So uh, worth checking out. So I'm going to, in an effort to be diplomatic, I've got two object lessons, one of which is doubling down on the sports ball theme, and the other of which is a, is a zag. So in, in a different type of football, there is there has been going on for a couple weeks now, the African Cup of Nations, which is... The I believe it's biennial tournament in among African soccer countries. So like every you know every country has a corresponding national soccer team, and this is the tournament for all of the African countries. And it is an absolute delight. It's taking place like in the middle of the European soccer season, which is a subject of much controversy um, and of much ham-fisted comments from European reporters to African players about to whom they are really loyal in a real China initiative flashback. But it is an absolute delight. The games are super fun. There's there's lots of different... So it's it's very over-inclusive as these tournaments go. There's lots of teams involved in the initial stages. And I was... Cards on the table, I was, I was a big flag kid when I was growing up. I was real into... I could tell you the flags for pretty much every country and was that was that was like my thing that, that is the I mean, least surprising thing i've ever heard about you jacob when i was a big flag kid i couldn't handle legos couldn't handle i didn't have much patience for that but the flags were really my thing and this is like you know nothing says flag kid like like being able to fire up the highlights of comoros versus sierra leone on, on youtube and it's just a real hearkening back to to my <laughs> days there um so i highly recommend that and then for those not inclined to watch soccer highlights on youtube 
I watched for the first time. I'm, I'm late to the party. I watched Arrival this weekend. My God, what a what a movie! What a movie! I was just absolutely gobsmacked. And I think even particularly watching it, it feels like a very pre-Trump movie in its optimism and its cosmopolitanism and its you know warm overtones. And I, I found it given the the delta of six years that it's been since it came out, it that probably made it all the more moving. But what a movie. My God. So you got, you know, if, if you're just listening to me, you got your sports, you got your movie, you're all set. You got your flags. Yeah. Fi- buy an atlas. So while you're at it. <laughs> if you are ever indicted, which I hope you never are, I really hope it is Jacob Schultz, a.k.a. Flag Kid. <laughs> Flag Kid. Mm-hmm. That would be very specific indictment. But all right, we'll take it. It's possible. Um, well, on that note, with that... Good wishes for Jacob's future. <laughs> we, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com. Actually, I believe that's thelawfarestore.com. Or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please, please. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you download this podcast or wherever you download this podcast, however you download this podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your friends and loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu, Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are, once again, edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Jacob Schultz, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then... Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.